And this evening, as is traditional in offering a Dharma talk, um, for the first night, I'd like to speak about wise understanding or right understanding that is the very beginning of the Buddhist path. Um, And to invite you to listen, not so much to try to remember or take notes or something, no exams are coming, but rather to listen in an easy and meditative way and sense what is true for yourself. If anything, it's just meant to be a reminder. And much of the time when I speak, I'm really talking to myself and reminding myself of things that I need to remember and express. So if it rings true, if it touches that in you, lovely. And if not, toss it out. The wise understanding offered by the Buddha in one text. He says, not merit, good deeds, not concentration and stillness, not insight, nor the absence of good deeds and merit and concentration and insight. None of these are the true aim of the spiritual path. But the sure heart's release This and this alone is the purpose for the teachings of the Blessed One or the Awakened One and for all who follow the path of awakening. So the purpose of meditation practice is to bring us to feel and sense and abide in a great freedom of heart. And when Sylvia first invited me and the rest of us to join on this retreat with her, She said, I don't want to make it a diversity retreat where we focus on the issues of diversity as a uh, main theme of the retreat, um, even though they're, they're important ones in our lives and in the culture. She said, I want to make it a retreat of inclusivity, which was in the original title of it, in which we come together with all our diversity and all our differences and learn to practice together in our temple, in our sacred space, the practices of the heart that are needed for all human beings in this world um, if we are to live together wisely. Right understanding, when the Buddha was asked toward the very last days of his life, how shall we live when you are not here? What will make a wise way for the followers of the Blessed One? And he spoke to the householders especially in a very practical way. He said, as long as followers of the way meet in harmony and speak together in harmony and separate in harmony, may they be expected to prosper and not decline. As long as they respect the ancient wisdom and as long as they respect their elders of long standing and as long as they respect and care for those who are vulnerable among them, the children, the women, others, as long as they respect and care for the forest and the streams and the shrines of the place in which they live, as long as they preserve their own personal mindfulness and compassion, so long may they be expected to prosper and not decline. And when you enter the temple... There is a sense, if you enter any of the great monasteries of Asia, 
there's a sense of tremendous respect. The paths are swept clean and there's a respect for the trees and the stones and the grasses and the way that people move has respect in them. For the littlest bugs in the temple, if you watch the monks and nuns, this poem from a wonderful calligrapher, Lloyd Reynolds, the master calligrapher, he writes, a bug crawls over the paper, leave him be, we need all the readers we can get. (laughs) And as you enter the temple, there is this deep respect or sensitivity for all of life that is there. The earth is crowded with heaven, every common bush afire, says one poet. And when we come into the temple, we're invited to see with the eyes of a Buddha, to see the humanity of all those sitting around us and all of the life in its crawling, the worms crawling across the the pathway there and the deer in the hillside and the new green grass, and to give respect to this place that we live. Now, in the time of the Buddha, one of the famous stories of that time is of a woman named Pakati. And in her village, where she was uh, an outcast, a low caste, and the people who were outcasts in the caste system of India generally were the Dravidian people who were the indigenous people of that area from the south and were pushed into that role by northerners who came in, the various Aryan tribes, and made themselves the high caste Brahmins and so forth. And it was, and to this day remains, so um, extreme that not only can they not drink from the same water fountain, you remember that here, but even to let the shadow of a person who is an outcast cross a pass across the water or the food of a higher caste person poisons it and it's not allowed to be eaten. So there she was, this young woman, Pakati, and Ananda, the chief disciple of the Buddha, passes by and says, may I have some water to drink? She's standing next to the well. And Pakati says, oh, monk, I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated for I am an untouchable caste. And Ananda stood for a moment and looked at her very steadily and then replied, I ask not for caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leaped joyfully, and she gave Ananda the water, and Ananda thanked her and went away. But she followed from a distance, and hearing that he was a disciple of the Buddha, went to the Blessed One and said, Lord, let me live where your disciple dwells for I, that I may see and minister unto him for I have come to love Ananda. And the Buddha being wise said, Pakati, your heart is full of love but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love but is kindness and gracious compassion. Accept then the compassion and kindness you have seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And though others may say you are born low caste, You will be a model for noble men and women. Swerve not from the path of justice and you will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. 
very radical thing that was done in the time of the Buddha in that culture with the level of racism that was there to say we will create a community in which every being is respected. So another story about a well for you, some number of stories tonight, including one that I don't have time to tell. I was talking with my fellow teachers about a a legend from King Arthur and... um, Maybe I'll be able to tell it another time. But anyway, uh, a friend of mine, um, Lynn Twist, who's been involved for many years in international aid work in many parts of the world, um, was contacted, her one of the organizations she was a leader in, by a group of villages in West Africa, in Senegal, who were just on the edge of the Sahara Desert, in the Sahel Desert, this fine yellow sand way out in the uh, remote part of the country and their water was drying up and they were afraid like most indigenous people that if they lost their water they'd end up in shanty towns in the capital with no culture, no uh, jobs, nothing uh, of dignity. So they contacted her organization and a group of people from America went and got Senegalese drivers who knew the desert to take them there and land rovers. And they went on a typically warm day, 100 degrees, crossing the desert for hours and hours and hours in Land Rover. And all of a sudden they got way out where there were no tracks and the drivers turned off the engines of the car and just sat as if to listen. And after a short time, or a long time, as these things go, they heard drums in the distance. And the driver smiled and turned on the engines again. Ah, now we know where we're going. And followed the sound of the drums and came to a cluster of baobab trees in which the villagers had walked out to meet them. Hundreds of them, children, men, women, and the women in these very loose, beautiful, colorful clothing that they wear in the Sahel. And the leaders of the village welcomed them. They were taken back with all the people cheering and so forth to the middle of this group of villages and listened to the elders who said, our culture is at risk, our villages may die, the government can't help us, we're too far out here, and we have less and less water, we don't know what to do. They talked for a long time about what the alternatives were for two or three days. And Lynn noticed that all the time they talked, she was with the elders who were the guys, and the women were all in the back row. You know how it is. It's not just the outcasts, but anyway, you know the story. Um, the uh, wisdom of the feminine is still outcast in many places. And finally she said, um, may I meet with the women? And this was unheard of. The mullahs, it's a Muslim part of that part of Africa, Um, the chief wouldn't allow the women to speak for the tribe. But since Lynn and her people had the money, there was a little negotiation, you know how it works. And finally she ended up meeting with all of the elder women, especially of the village, with a translator, and they made a circle. And as they sat together, sang first a song, and then the women who were there One of the leaders spoke right away, saying that to them, they knew the solution, but the men wouldn't listen. They said that in their dreams and visions, they had seen that there was a lake underneath the desert, and all they needed was permission from the men to dig it. 
but it wasn't women's work. Women were supposed to be weaving and certain kinds of um, uh, farming were allowed, but not digging, not planting. But the women, she said, carried such purpose and vision and dignity in their speaking. She said, I will help you. And she went back and met with the mullahs and after enough cups of tea and enough proper transactions of money and various things, the women were uh, allowed by the men to begin to dig the well. And over the next year and a half, as the community rationed its supplies of water, the women dug with hand tools and the simple equipment that was given, deeper and deeper into the earth, while they sang and drummed and cared for the children, and the men drummed around them in the circle, never doubting that there was water there. And the men watched skeptically, but allowed them to continue. And the women had no doubts that if they dug deep enough, the lake was there. And it was. In a year and a half, the underground lake of their dreams was reached. And in the year since, the men and women have built a pumping system and a water tower for storage. And now, two dozen villages are transformed with gardens, irrigation, farming, schools, the creation of their fabrics, and a... And in them also a new respect for women. So here we are with Ananda and Pakati at the well, and now we're back in Senegal at maybe the same well. And all of us know the truth of this world that is spoken by indigenous people everywhere that we're brothers and sisters and uncles and aunties. That's the phrase that's used all the time, you know. I mean, it's Auntie Condoleezza. Fortunately it's, also, fortunately, it's also Auntie Barbara Lee. But anyway, you know, and Uncle Dick Cheney and <laughs> other uncles. The teachings of the Buddha from the very beginning recognizes the interdependence of us all. Strawberries are too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfect ripe ones bruise at even too heavy a human touch. This means that every piece of fruit has to be picked by calloused human hands. Every piece of bread, every glass of wine we drink represents someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. We cannot get away from the truth. The only way we can live is to feed one another. Or Bishop Tutu, who writes, In Africa, when you ask someone, how are you? The reply you get is in the plural, even when you're speaking to one person. A man would say, we are well, or we are not well. He himself may be quite well, but his grandmother is not well. So he is not well either. Our our humanity is caught up in one another's. The solitary human being is really a fiction. So here we come to sit at the edge of our own well or to dig our well, if you like, with our hands and our breath and our attention, to take this seat halfway between heaven and earth and establish the quality of dignity to face the whole of our humanity. We sit... And first, we feel the tensions in our body because you get quiet and then your body says, remember me? 
the pains in the shoulders and the back and the tensions that we carry, they start to release themselves as we're here. And the stress of our life taps you on the shoulder. You've been carrying me for a time. Now you need to feel me so that I can be honored and let go. The trauma. And the unfinished business of the heart will come. You sit quietly minding your own business and the tears that need to be shed and the longings that we need to feel and all the unfinished business shows itself. And the sleepiness, you know, half of you are sleepy today. In one monastery, it is also met with respect. It's called the poor man's nirvana, right? (laughs) It's just that we need... We've been running around so much and our body says, we need to slow down. We need to pay respect to this body. Or sometimes it's restlessness. Or the mind. Here you sit with some sense of dignity and then does the mind listen? The mind has no pride at all. It will do anything. Annie Lamott says, says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. Right? (laughs) So we sit together and you see 10,000 different thoughts and plans and judgments and all that with the sense of dignity in the middle. You feel the suffering that you carry that's been brought to you by injustice and trauma of your life or maybe the sorrows of the world that we all know so, so well, all so well. And what we are invited to do in this opening of freedom, of loving-kindness and awareness is to sit in the midst of it all with dignity. As Albert Camus says, where did you go, Albert? (laughs) I lost you. We all carry within us our places of exile, our crimes, our ravages. Our task is not to unleash them on the world. It is to transform them in ourselves and in others. Or James Baldwin who wrote, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And perhaps if one were to talk about evil in the world, a word I don't tend to use very often, the best definition would be when human beings are unwilling to bear their own pain and fear and place it on someone else. So here we sit, and we sense all the conditioning of the past that we carry in our body, judgments, reactions, our fear, all those kinds of things that come, especially when we're not aware over the course of the day. This layer is called the small sense of self. Sometimes it's described as the body of fear. But there is another reality. O nobly born, says the Buddha, take the seat halfway between heaven and earth with dignity and nobility and remember your heart's true nature. No matter what, as Martin Luther King said, we will meet your suffering with soul force. We cannot obey your unjust laws, but we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience, 
we will win yours as well. The seat of dignity and nobility is the human capacity to be free no matter what the circumstance. This is right or wise understanding, says the Buddha. There is a freedom of heart in each of us that cannot be touched by anyone else, that no one can touch. And one of the pictures I carry with me when I teach retreats is of a man named Vedran Smolovich. Uh, maybe I'll put it up out there. He is the cellist of Sarajevo, and it shows him playing his cello in the bombed-out National Library in Sarajevo in the war in Bosnia when Sarajevo for three years was uh, subject to daily mortar attacks, um, snipers, bombings, and so forth. Um, Every day, Vedran would put on his tuxedo, so he'd been part of the National Symphony, and take a folding chair and go sit out in the central square in Sarajevo in spite of the snipers and the mortars and play cello for the people of Sarajevo so they wouldn't give up hope for three years. Right understanding says that there is a freedom of heart that no one can touch in you. And you see it in Nelson Mandela after 27 years of prison coming out with such dignity and graciousness. You know, or in, in the history of Sojourner Truth, it is in every one of us. It is our true nature, our birthright, says the Buddha. One of my dear friends is a kindergarten teacher. And during the beginning of the Iraq war a year ago, Peggy is her name, the planes taking off with soldiers and equipment from, what is it, Andrews Air Force Base? That's the closest one to here. Her school wasn't far from there, and the planes flew quite low over the school. And the kids, kindergartners, first graders, had been hearing television, you know, talk about war. What is this, Peggy? What's happening? Those are war planes. They ran and they were really frightened. Are they going to bomb us? No, no, they're going over to Iraq. You're safe here. It's all right. And then the children looked at her and they said, but are there children in Iraq? And she said, yes, there are. And then they said, well, they must not know that. They must not know that or they wouldn't do this. So we have to tell them. And they spent uh, the whole morning out on the playground making a big picture of a child and getting Peggy to help them spell the word Iraq, big enough to cover the whole playground that the planes could see it. Because they knew, as we do, that it's not right. It is there in each one of us. And the work of the heart, the work of the retreat, is to reclaim this seat of dignity and compassion and loving kindness. And it happens even in a moment of mindfulness. You know, you go through the day and you say, well, it was so hard, I was sleepy and restless and my mind wandered. But then there'll be a moment, a gap, a space, spacious awareness, timeless, transparent, where you say, oh, really caught up in those thoughts, wasn't I? Oh, those judgments, just lost in them. And at that moment, you are free. Mindfulness and metta are the invitation 
to these moments of freedom and to the well of water of freedom that is underneath all experience. O nobly born, says the Buddha, there is a most wonderful way for living beings to purify the heart, overcome grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, and travel the path of wisdom and compassion to find freedom. And this is mindfulness itself, the awareness that knows what is happening as the witness to it all, body and actions, feelings and hearts, mind, all these experiences of thoughts and images that come, even your personality. I mean, one of the things that happens as you sit on retreat is you see your personality. And that's almost more difficult than seeing your body, right? I mean, if you look in the mirror, a really odd thing happens because you look in the mirror and you notice you're getting older. You've gotten older than you were, right? The odd piece is that you don't feel older. Your body's older, but it doesn't necessarily feel like you're older. Do you know that experience? And that's because the mind itself doesn't exist in time. Awareness and consciousness is outside of time, is timeless. Yes, the body's born and it ages and it does what it does. But who are you really in there? There's a place of witnessing and knowing. Oh, here's the body doing this. Here's the personality. You know, as Ramdas said, he's become a connoisseur of his neuroses. You know, you don't get rid of it, unfortunately. You have a body and you get a personality. It's just how it works. The question is, how do you touch what you see here? Can you, do you judge it and fight with it? Or can you receive what arises with a space of respect, as if to bow to it and mindfulness? This too, joy and sorrow, fear and confusion, love and hate, all of these things will come without judgment. Because mindfulness is the space of awareness. It's allowing space for the whole dance of this humanity that you are. You can't get away from it because it is what you are. To be held, the joy and pleasure and pain and fear, all without judgment. Dharma teacher Julia Child, you can almost hear her voice you know, on her cooking shows. She says, listen, if you're alone in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can always just pick it up. Who's going to know, right? <laughs> we're so hard on ourselves in our life. And we're so hard on ourselves on our retreat. The practice of loving kindness and, and mindfulness is not the practice of judging. It is the practice of respect for what is so, to bow to it all. Even judgment comes, wow, that's a good judgment. Thank you for your opinion. Is you say, I shouldn't be judging. Stop that judging. What's that? More judgment, right? Okay. Thank you for your opinion. I appreciate that. You know whose voice that is. You don't have to listen to her or him anyway. Metta, this great mystery of love. No one even knows what it is, really. It's like gravity, allurement, someone said, the poet. The planets and stars are all drawn to one another because we dance in this great whole. As we sit, we discover a shift of identity. The small self, abandoned, abused, lost, guilty, fearful, seeking approval. You know that one? The universe approves of you, obviously. You're still here, 
right? So give it up, okay? There comes a shift of identity from that small self, I'm not good enough, or I'm, I'm this, or I, this happened to me. All those are true, and they need respect. Taking the seat of nobility, a graciousness of heart, with all things. How far you go in life, says George Washington Carver, depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. That is really a a poem of respect, or Martin Luther King's version of it, for the smallest things. If a person sweeps streets for a living, they should sweep like Michelangelo painted, like Beethoven composed music, like Nuria danced. The quality of attention has dignity, nobility, a graciousness, a listening. Friends of mine have been involved for years in what they call the listening project, going around the world and trying to listen to people who have not been listened to. So they went to listen to Muammar Gaddafi in Libya when he was a great outcast to hear his story, his side. They went to Lebanon to listen to Hezbollah and to some of the groups that were there that no one in the European-American system would listen to. They went to Nicaragua and El Salvador and listened to both sides in the conflict. A group related went in England to meet with the head of the Supreme Allied Commander for, for NATO in Europe when they were deploying more and more missiles in the 1980s still. And they got their meeting with the big general. And when they were there, the first thing they said after sitting down looking, because you could imagine, you know, deploying more and more nuclear missiles and the insanity of that. They looked at him and said, you know, it must be a very difficult thing for you to feel the weight of responsibility for the security of so many people in Europe on your own shoulders. They met him with respect. And then a genuine conversation could happen. Try it in your family. Try it with your own body and heart and mind. And I had these kind of grand stories, but I don't mean to be idealistic about it. If in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, and if you can sit quietly after difficult news, and if... You can happily eat whatever is put on your plate. And if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, and if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, and if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. We have all these ideas, oh, I'm going to become this great spiritual person, and it's not really about that. Because we use the spiritual stuff to judge ourselves more. We get so hard on ourselves. Of what avail is it if we can travel to the moon, if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? So some years ago, um, I was leading a big retreat like this on the East Coast, quite a few years ago, actually, And um, 
we were going to do the loving kindness meditation that next morning and I was assigned to do it kind of in our teacher meeting. Um, and so I was supposed to go in the sitting at 10.30 to lead the metta. And I was having some conflict, I would say, with the woman that I was involved with at the time. You know how that happens. Um, she hadn't done or I hadn't done or whatever. You know how the story, he said, she said. And so she called me that morning and she was upset at something and then I got really upset and we were really into it and in our kind of fight and so forth and then I heard in the distance and I said oh excuse me I have to go and lead the loving kindness meditation (laughs) we can finish this later you know so I had to hang up and go in I went into the hall, and here I sat, and this is 100 people, and it's time for metta. And so I say, sit and let yourself relax, let your heart be soft, think of someone you really love, you know, and care for, and wish them well, may they be happy and safe, and so forth. And then I make a little pause, you know, my, my sweetest loving-kindness voice, do all this, and then a little pause for everybody to do it, right? And in the pause, the thoughts come, I'm going to call her back and tell her, you know, Okay, now think of another person you love a lot, right? <laughs> and then comes in, damn it, you know, that's completely unround. I'm going to, you know, and I'm just raging. Okay, now forgiveness for another person. <laughs> and it was fantastic because the mind has no pride at all, you know. And I just got to watch, this is what the mind will do. And you will see it when you do your metta. The idea isn't that you get it right. Oh, now I'm going to be this great, saintly, loving person. It is the intention, the seed, that you plant over and over again. And actually, by the end of that sitting, I did call her back. But I, you know, I'd kind of talk myself into some metta and some forget. It took a while, you know, to get there. I didn't want to let go of being right. You know how that is. But little by little, it kind of whittled away at it. Um, and... Um, Later we got married, so... (laughs) Anyway, um, it's not about idealism. It is really about the respect of the heart for all that arises. Sometimes you do metta and the opposite comes up. You feel how angry you are or how um, jealous or how hurt you've been. And that is the purification that is also asked. And you still say, even so, may you be safe, may you be well. Omitting none, as Sylvia says. So a story I like to read on retreats, um, but there's a little twist to it. A few retreats ago, a woman came into her interview group. Um, Early on, we sat, or individual interview, and she said, this is going to be a tough retreat for me. She's been to a few other retreats. She said, I am so angry, and I'm really angry at my husband. Um, we recently retired, we stopped our work, and we set up this business with the money that we have, and we're trying to do it, and he is, he is irresponsible, he doesn't do it, he's not tending it, I have to do all the work, you know, and he's not doing the part that he said, and all this, and she was just furious, and she said, what should I do with it? And I said, nothing. She said, what do you mean, nothing? I said, well, on this retreat, we're here to do the work of the heart, and the task isn't to fix your husband at this moment. Um, It's just to sit with the hurt and the outrage and the anger and all the things that you're feeling and let yourself bring to this respect, the pain that you have, let yourself bring to this 
difficulty, your own understanding, and you will know what to do with it. It will come to you in the course of this time. So she sat with her struggle. And in the course of the retreat, I read this story about respect from Richard Selzer, a surgeon at Yale, who writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clown-like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room on the opposite side of the bed in the evening lamplight. I gaze at them who touch each other so generously, and the woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze, for one is not bold in an encounter with the gods. And unaware of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. So much respect and dignity in that and care. So on the last day of the retreat, the woman who was so angry with her husband came up to me and said, here, and put this in my hand. And she said, thank you so much. I found my heart's answer. And I opened this and read it, and it says, my husband may not be a good business partner, but he would kiss my crooked mouth. The quality of the heart that offers respect to the joys and sorrows, to the pain of ourselves and others, to the beauty of what is here in this moment and in this place and those in front of us. This respect has a tremendous power. There are two great forces in the world, those who are not afraid to kill and those who are not afraid to love. Oscar Romero said, they can kill me, but they cannot kill the voice of justice. And if they kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadorian people. Or Cesar Chavez, who says, when we're really honest with ourselves, we must admit that our lives are all that really belong to us. So how we use our lives determines what kind of person we are. It is my deepest belief that only by giving our lives do we find life. I am convinced that the truest act of courage, the strongest act of humanity, is to sacrifice ourselves in compassion for something higher. To be human is to be willing to suffer for what we believe. God help us to be human. 
two great forces, those unafraid to kill, only can be met by those who are unafraid to love. And love and attention are the deepest forms of respect. There's no one who doesn't long for respect. The elderly, the young, the teens, your own body and feelings, those who are angry and disenfranchised and those who are sad, the environment, the rich, the Muslims, the Hindus, the animists, the gays, the straights, the plants in your garden, your family and community, all thrive on respect. Okay, but what about difficulties? It's one thing to offer respect. We also need to have respect for Mara. Mara was the, is the personification in India, the archetype, the god of greed, hatred, ignorance, delusion, who came to test the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, to attack the Buddha. And Mara has an enormous power in the world. This is not strong forces, the power of prejudice and fear and greed and, and grasping and acquisition and hate and violence and addiction to oil or money or power, competition, war. All our lauded technology, said Albert Einstein, modern civilization is like an axe in the hand of a pathological criminal. And you can't just say no to Mara. Mara is a lot bigger than that. So what do we do? What about when it's really difficult? It is only then that we discover that there is something even greater when I was working with my teacher, Mahagosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, in the Cambodian refugee camp some years ago, I learned this in a very direct way. If you go down through the circle gate, you're not supposed to go past that, but you can um, for this purpose, just a little bit past the gate, the circle gate of the dining room, there's a little um, pavilion on the right, the gratitude pavilion. Some of you may have been in it. And it has pictures of our teachers and lineages and some of their, some of their beautiful words. And one of my favorite pictures in, in there is the picture of Mahagosananda, this kind of shining orange butterball um, uh, from Cambodia, and the Dalai Lama when they were here together at Spirit Rock a few years ago this meeting and the Dalai Lama had just arrived and they're old friends who've done peace work around the world and many years and know one another. And the Dalai Lama got out of his car and he went first to see Gosananda and they each began to bow to one another and Dalai Lama bowed and then Gosananda bowed and the Dalai Lama bowed and Gosananda bowed and when you see this picture they're each trying to bow lower than the other one basically. They're so far down that their heads bump right and they're touching and they're like less than level Um, And you just see the respect that they give to one another. It's this beautiful picture. So here we are in the refugee camps um, along the border of Cambodia, dry, barren rice paddy land in the hot season 
with 50 or 100,000 people in each camp, Sakao, Gao, Kawidung, little huts, bamboo, that are about five feet wide and seven feet long for what's left of a family, maybe a grandmother and two grandchildren, or maybe an uncle and one of his nieces, everybody else lost. Temples burned, schools destroyed, elders all killed, holocaust. And my teacher says, oh, we need a Buddhist temple in this camp. I said, we do? He said, yes, more than anything, these people have lost their faith. So we got permission from the UN High Commission for Refugees and built a bamboo temple in the middle of the central square of the camp. But because the first camp that we did it in was the people who'd been in the Khmer Rouge villages who escaped the fighting, in the camp underground were a lot of Khmer Rouge. And they heard about it and let people know quite directly that if anybody went to this Buddhist temple that once they were back in Cambodia out of the refugee camps, they would all be shot and killed. And this was serious. They had done this to so many. They'd killed almost all the monks in the country. So he built this temple, and one wondered if people would come. And then he took his gong, and he went around the camp the day before the temple was to meet and announced it, you know, through all the, around the, all the areas, And then that day, the big gong in the center was rung at noontime. And we wondered who would come. 25,000 people, 30,000 people filled the square. Couldn't be any more in there. And we sat there. And I watched him look out over these people who had suffered so deeply. um, as as, As bad as anyone had loss of everything they loved and the destruction of their culture and their families and their communities. And the the look in the eyes was of shock. The look in the eyes was of trauma, um, kind of unspeakable trauma. And I said, all right, what is he going to say to these people? And he put his hands together and bowed to them all and then began to chant. No teachings, just began to chant in Cambodian and in Sanskrit, Pali, the one of the first verses of the Buddhist scriptures, the Dhammapada, that goes, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he chanted it over and over, and pretty soon the people in the crowd began to chant with him, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And they chanted and chanted, and they sat hearing these chants that they hadn't heard for 10 years because the temples had been destroyed and their culture destroyed. And they wept. And he looked at them and bowed over and over and just offered these words. And it was as if he was saying to them, no matter how great your suffering and sorrow, there is a truth even bigger than that. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And it is in our own sitting, in our own walking, in our own practice here, that we begin to inhabit the place of courage and dignity and nobility that excludes none, that omits none. 
When people ask for a little attention, it's a great thing. Our body wants attention, our heart, our friends, our enemies, even the the environment, the animals. A little story from a friend, Dina Metzger. One day I was walking through Stanford University campus with a friend and I saw a crowd of people with cameras and video equipment on a little hillside. They were clustered around a pair of chimpanzees, a male running loose and a female on a chain about 25 feet long. And it turned out the male was from Marine World. The female was being studied for something at Stanford. Um, and uh, um, uh, who I thought were the spectators were actually scientists and publicity people trying to get them to mate. The male was eager, as males can be, He grunted, grabbed the female's chain and tugged. She whimpered and backed away. He was obviously not her type. He pulled again. She pulled back. Watching the chimp's faces, I began to feel sympathy for the female. Suddenly, the female chimp yanked her chain out of the male's grasp. To my amazement, she walked through the crowd straight over to me and took my hand. Then she led me across the circle to the only other two women in the crowd, and she joined hands with one of them. The three of us stood together in a circle. I remember the feeling of that rough palm against mine. (laughs) The little chimp had recognized us and reached out across all the years of evolution to form her own support group. (laughs) (sighs) We could say that the whole path of awakening, and the path, by the way, doesn't go from here to there. It goes from there to here, right, to where we are. The whole path of awakening is the path of respect. Dana, generosity of heart, is a respect for all around us and for the joy of giving its respect. Sila, non-harming, the precepts of compassion that Larry talked about, is an offering of respect to others and to our own dignity. Wisdom grows out of respect for the way that the world actually is. This is the way things are. What's that gesture, Sylvia? This is it? This is how things are? What's the phrase? It's like this. Ah, Such respect in that it's like this. Metta, compassion that we do over and over, it's like this, no matter what comes. And liberation itself grows out of our respect. Peace will come, says Alice Walker, whenever it is sincerely invited. Love will overflow every sanctuary given to it. Truth will grow where it is fertilized with a truthful heart. And faith will be its own beautiful reward. Out of the deep respect for each one of you here, for each of us, we bow to one another inwardly. I think of my practice that I learned in the forest monastery of bowing so many times in so many ways, that this quality of respect is really what we have to offer ourselves and the world, to see what Thomas Burton called the secret beauty. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, 
the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor knowledge can touch the core of their reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there'd be no more need for war or hatred or cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. And I saw it with the Dalai Lama when he came here. You know how any of you who have seen him, he bows all the time to people. And when you get in a, kind of the receiving line, like at the wedding or something like that, here's the Dalai Lama and he meets people. And he takes people's hand, but he doesn't just take it and then move on. The thing that's really beautiful, beside just his amazing presence, is that when he takes your hand and looks in your eyes to see that secret beauty, he holds it longer than you expect. That extra couple of moments where he could just move on to the next person, he doesn't, as if to make sure that you know that he sees the secret beauty in you. And you feel it. It's such an amazing thing to be seen with those eyes. Not just the eyes of the Dalai Lama, but the eyes of the Buddha that we all contain to see the secret beauty in those around us. I bow to you, to your brave hearts, to your secret beauty, and to the dignity and respect that is your birthright and that we share together in this retreat. Let us sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.